This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We followed yesterday, of course, uh, the bail hearing of alleged hacker Kareem Baratov. He was denied bail yesterday. Uh, is there an appeal coming? What goes on from now, uh, from this point forward, moving on? Uh, what is involved in extradition? Let's bring in Jeffrey Reed, Hamilton attorney, and he is with us now. Hello, Jeffrey. How are you today? I'm fine, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. So well, first of all... Uh, that's fine. Sounds like you've got a, a full uh, dance card. we got yeah. lots to talk about today, that's for sure. Uh, are you surprised that bail was denied in this case? No. I, I think the cheap talk around uh, town and uh, in the street and amongst my colleagues was that uh, the uh, fear of flight uh, was so high, or at least the uh, you know the grounds for that was so were so great that it would be difficult to uh, um, to get over that hurdle. Um, uh, I, I, I understand that Justice Witten uh, um, denied bail, and I understand, but I'm not really clear. I haven't read the decision that it was probably on the primary ground. He may have had uh, other grounds as well, because you know you can deny bail on the ground one is, will the person come back or not? The judge is not satisfied of that, then that's one ground. A second ground is, even if you think a person will come back, will the person commit further offenses? And then the third ground is the so-called tertiary ground. That's the third level, which is it, it's uh, so egregious that uh, the public would lose confidence in the administration of justice. But everybody thought it was the first ground, the one that there would be doubt uh, um, about whether uh, this person might fly, uh, flee or not. Uh, what about the parents' testimony saying that they would keep all devices away from him and that, you know, their place would be worse than jail, so to speak? Uh, obviously, the judge came back and said, well, uh, and, and made reference to, well, clearly you didn't know what was going on under your own roof while he was accumulating this wealth that was very uncharacteristic. So that didn't seem to hold much weight, did it? No, and that's a perfect example of where a judge actually has to hear the actual evidence and size up, uh, you know, whether it's reliable or not. Um, and and judge in deciding that uh, doesn't necessarily, you know, there's lots of ways of slicing and dicing it. In some cases, a judge might say, I just think you're not, a, 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 I think you're, you're not being truthful. Or might say, I think you're being truthful and sincere, but I don't think you're effective. And that's very often a typical approach the Crown will take in many a case, not just this, even in uh, ordinary, uh, what I call day-to-day uh, criminal offenses, common, common criminal offenses, which, uh, you know, the, the uh, person will come forward and say, I can do the supervising, let me be the surety to supervise this person, and the Crown will often explore the idea, well, you know, what have you known about this person up till now, where, where have you been, what have you been doing, uh, and if the person's, and it's a bit of a, a loaded thing, because the person says, well, I, I didn't know what was going on, the Crown says, aha, so you don't really uh, supervise very well, and there are answers to that, or the person says, well, I knew what was going on, that's even worse, and the Crown says, so you knew what was going on, you weren't doing anything, so um, it comes back to the judge saying, is that likely to be, A, something I can rely upon, and B, would it be effective? Because even if these people are sincere, the judge might say, but I don't think that you're in a position to really fulfill that, uh, that, that, that assurance. Uh, what about his ability, you know, they said they were going to keep him off the Internet and such, but what about his ability to, uh, you know, obviously he's very prolific when it comes to this sort of thing. Uh, was there really any way to properly surveil him, I mean, and, and, and keep him under wraps? And, and, and knowing that he, he, he would be, uh, you know, not a flight risk, there just wasn't really any way to guarantee that, was well, there? Well, short of, short of a house arrest, which... I don't know uh, whether that was or that card was played or not. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it had been. A house arrest is basically where a person is uh, is literally in their house under uh, supervision all the time. I, I remember seeing some sort of a quote to the effect that the uh, the, the parents were saying, uh, you know, he, this is going to be worse than in jail as mm-hmm. far as how restrictive it is. But again, it comes back to how effective you think that will be. Will the person be able to slip out from under the uh, the watchful eye of whoever is looking over them? Uh, will they be able to access um, uh, what? Uh, you know, uh, the internet uh, mm-hmm. through one means or another. It, it is true that it appears from everything we've heard that uh, this fellow is very uh, proficient uh, in, in the, the internet world and uh, computers. So what happens now? Can he appeal this? Yeah, he can. It's interesting because um, without getting really technical, it's almost impossible not to, but this is a decision by a judge of the Superior Court, and there really isn't a, an effective means or a clear-cut means of doing that. And yet there is a practice whereby um, um, there are some cases that uh, they can be uh, um, reviewed by uh, a judge uh, in the uh, Court of Appeal. So um, I think there is a, a I think there is a route to do that legally, uh, but it's 
more a question of, you know, even if you've got a sort of a legal route, the question is, is it effective? And that, that really means, is are you able to show another judge of a higher level of court that uh, that there was something wrong about this? And mm-hmm. the judge is likely to defer to the trial judge if the trial judge thought about the proper principles, heard all the evidence, didn't misunderstand the evidence, stated it correctly, and then said, well, this is my judgment. Higher court's not likely to change it. If there's a change of circumstance... That could be a little different. Oh, and I, I just want to correct something. I, I know that uh, I, I spoke with Bill, uh, Bill Kelly uh, yesterday, and he was asking about uh, who, who had the burden on this. That's been an interesting subject of debate amongst my colleagues. And again, uh, none of us that I'm aware of were actually present during the hearing and, and, and not privy to uh, that stuff. But I, I just want to correct something, because I had said, well, you know, the burden's on the uh, on the accused person at the at this first level that they've just finished. Um, that's in some cases. In in most cases, apart from uh, where there's a warrant for the person's arrest issued by the uh, International Criminal Court, uh, apart from those, it's the ordinary system where uh, the Crown has to show cause why the person should be kept in. In other words, the burden's on the Crown. Hmm. But there are a lot of exceptions to that, and I, I don't know specifically what offense he's accused of committing in the United States, because there has to be a parallel offense in Canada in order for him to be extraditable. So, in other words, if you commit, to make an obvious uh, example, a theft in the United States, well, we have theft in our law. It's a parallel offense, so it's an extraditable one. But if they have some peculiar offense that has no parallel here, it wouldn't be. So it may be that there are offenses that they're looking at down there, that there are parallel offenses here that would trigger a reverse onus. I just want to clarify that in case people have been listening and saying, does, does this fellow really know what he's talking about? It's, it, it, it's just not perfectly clear. My colleagues were a little puzzled by that because Justice Witten, as he was quoted in the newspaper, had uh, talked about, or at least had been re- referred to in the newspaper, um, uh, in the media, uh, about uh, whether uh, the accused had uh, shown justification for his release, which obviously shows the burden is on the accused. But the question was why. So hmm. mostly, mostly the accused, uh, the Crown has to show it, but there are some exceptions. So what happens now moving forward? Well, they're going to move to the extradition hearing now, and, that, and how much time it takes to get prepared for that, I don't know. Um, the, the extradition uh, essentially works on, uh, on what's called a, a record of the case, which is where the, uh, the foreign uh, power, in this case uh, the United States, prepares basically in written form what uh, what it, it it's bringing to uh, to to court to say this is this is the uh, the case against uh, the accused person and the accused person has a chance to answer that it's largely coming down to trying to uh, uh, find deficiencies in that case, and there may be deficiencies. You know, sometimes sometimes they are found. Perhaps uh, uh, there's some uh, something that doesn't meet the legal standards required in order to send somebody from our country to another country and be under another country's law. But um, it's, it's seldom that you'll find that there'll be a sort of affirmative evidence. And I'll tell you why. And it, just in a nutshell, basically, if a case is put forward that if believed, and the, the trial, extradition judge isn't going to decide it's, it is going to be believed or not, just going to say, look, there's evidence here that is capable of being believed, and if it's capable of being believed and could support a conviction, then, then you're off to, to the other country to have your trial in the other country. So it, mean, it stands to reason, then, that if, even if you've got a defense that at a trial, you know, they'd put their case in, then you'd put your defense up, and the trial judge or jury would have to decide and say, I believe this and not that and so forth, and might acquit you. That won't work at the extradition stage. It's sufficient for them to put up enough that if it was believed, and the, trial, and the extradition judge won't be deciding, I believe it or I don't believe it, just going to say, look, there's enough here to justify a trial. Right. Off you go to the other country. So it's not, a, you know, it's not like convicting somebody where there has to be beyond reasonable doubt or any of that. No, no, it's not. It's, 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 a, it's a long, long way from that. Uh, it's, uh, it's actually a, a very uh, minimal uh, amount of, uh, of uh, decision uh, or, or evidence that has to be put forward. It's the same decision that's been adopted into our law for preliminary inquiries. And, and, and if you know how preliminary inquiry works, you know, that's a trial to decide if there should be a trial. That's right. not a technical term, but that's what effectively it amounts to. And so all the Crown ever has to show on a preliminary inquiry is that there's, there's a charge here. We've got some evidence. If it was believed, it's capable of being believed. Maybe it will be, maybe it won't be. But if the judge decides to believe this, it's capable of supporting a conviction. Well, that's the test they, they use for a preliminary, and it's exactly the same test they took hmm. from the extradition case. So that's right. The reasonable doubt doesn't figure in. 
Uh, how long would an extradition case take? What are they, how long would these normally take? I guess they're not, everything's different, but... Well, it, I, I would expect, I mean, I, <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, things are unfolding fairly quickly. It's only recently that the arrests occurred, that the bail hearings happened. I think that they would want to probably take some time to organize their, their case carefully. And what they're going to do amongst other things, is get a good, hard look at what this, uh, this case is that's being brought forward for extradition purposes from the other country and, and see if there are uh, uh, deficiencies in it that can be exploited. And that may take a fair bit of work, not just from the point of legal research, but also perhaps they may have to do some background investigation of their own on the defense side. And, and, and I don't know how long it will take, but I would say that, uh, uh, you know, it's a truism, at least uh, I, I tell a lot of my clients that, uh, let, you know, we, you can not usually do something quickly and well. Usually you have to choose, and I'd rather choose to do it well rather than quickly. So I think that the um, the, the best interest would be to take the time to get it uh, well well prepared in order to try to meet this case in court. Uh, apparently this could start as early as June. Yes, it could. It could. It, it, the court will obviously start by saying, look, these are availability dates we've got for a hearing. How long do you think the hearing will take? Mm-hmm. And, of course, the defense might not even be able to answer that question yet, because from the Crown point of view, it doesn't usually take very long. You have this record of the case, you put it in, there it is. So it's really a question of how much time does it take for uh, the defense to respond to that, both in terms of if it does wish to produce some uh, evidence. And, and, and in spite of what I said, there may be some circumstances that some evidence might be useful or alternatively uh, uh, develop legal arguments that need to be made. So uh, the court will start off by saying, how long are you guys going to need? The Crown and the defense are going to say, well, we need this amount of time, if they know yet, even. Then they're going to say, well, um, you know, we've got these amounts of time available in the future. Uh, pick something. So how, will, uh, how would Baratov's lawyer defend against this? How, how, what would you say? I mean, obviously there's overwhelming evidence. Well, we're assuming that at this point. Yeah, we assume uh, that. In order to, to have this charge laid in the first place. Uh, how do you defend against something like this? Well, I don't, uh, that's be going beyond what I can tell in a case like this. Uh, I mean, it's a truism that in any given case, well, first of all, you have to, when you say defend, you mean defend at the extradition stage, or or do you mean defend ultimately? Because if you mean to ultimately, that'll be, if he gets extradited, it'll be something that's taken care of in the United States, and then it'll raise issues, not just legal, so-called technical issues, but it'll, it'll raise the whole question of the merits of the case. So... Ultimately, they're going to have to uh, the the the, uh, the prosecution is going to have to show that offense is committed and that this person, amongst others, was one who committed it. And sometimes they can prove a can offense is committed, but they can't prove the identity of of the of the uh, perpetrator. Other mm-hmm. times, other times they may have trouble even proving that an offense is committed uh, because uh, because the circumstances don't actually show that it's necessarily an offense that occurred. You could take, for example, a building that burns down. You know, it's charged as an arson, but but sometimes you attack those cases by saying, well. Wait a second. Who says it was even a deliberate burning down? Maybe it was a something that w- was uh, deficient in the wiring of the furnace, whatever, and it was an accident. It really wasn't something malicious. So that's how they're going to approach it in general. But I don't know specifically in this case. I think that because of the nature of the thing they're talking about, as I understand it, it has to do with the that, that um, giant uh, breach uh, and hack at uh, Yahoo. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and and it. And, and so it seems to me that it took them a while to get to this point. It means to me, I infer, that, that they had to develop a lot of uh, uh, investigation, a lot of evidence, connect a lot of uh, dots in order to get there. And, and all those points are points that, you'd, that the defense team would want to look at carefully to see if, if the conclusions and inferences that are being put forward, that, that ultimately are being put forward to the court here and say, this is an offense, and this fellow is one of the people that committed it, if that really stands up or, or if the late chain of logic is deficient in some way. Hamilton attorney Jeffrey Reed has been with us. Uh, alleged hacker Kareem Baratop denied bail yesterday. Jeffrey, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Uh, always a pleasure, Scott. Give me a call anytime. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, Transport Minister Mark Garneau made an announcement yesterday saying that he has imposed a new airline security measures but provided very few details. Uh, they cited a need for secrecy as the reason why there were few details. To talk more about all of this, David Harris is with us in Cygnus Strategic Group. He's a terrorism expert. He is with us now. Hello, David. How are you today? Oh, 
Oh, fine, thanks, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking the time to join us as usual. Before we get into airline security, I just have to ask you your thoughts on uh, you know reports that are coming out uh, today in regard to Russia and Trump and such. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, Trump reacting to uh, the chemical attacks in in Syria, uh, and of course, we all know that Trump has spent the better part of the last year. Uh, pretty much discrediting the CIA and the FBI and so on and so forth. Now that we have a world event, that the man is standing on the world stage, how do you, where does the support come from? And, and, and how do you now justify what you said against the CIA and the FBI in front of world powers like Russia when they say, well, you don't believe in them, why should we? Well, I guess he thinks he's in a position where he, by uh, declaration, so to speak, uh, making these declaratory statements, he uh, establishes uh, where he's coming from. Uh, there is one interesting twist in all this, and I mean, apart from a few others, I suppose, that um, he, uh, if you think about it, had been under siege for a fairly long time. The administration had uh, on the grounds of allegations about undue closeness, as it was being portrayed, especially by certain Democratic Party politicians, of uh, Trump with uh, Putin, and of course, by extension, the Trump team and Trump government of the U.S. with Putin, which raised all kinds of, frankly, hideous possibilities. Mm. Now, those overarching issues and questions, which are still to be examined, of course, by at least one congressional committee, are starting to look uh, a bit peculiar, um, because if you have Trump and Putin uh, daggers drawn across the, the international stage, you can imagine them making the case that Trump is somehow in league with Putin, that Putin may have in some way elected Trump. Uh, it seems increasingly improbable, and that doesn't mean that there may not be things worth looking at there, but uh, uh, it's, it's a fascinating kind of twist, and uh, in its own way, some of the reaction of the Putin side may be actually working in the favor of Trump. It's it's all a rather perverse arrangement, it seems. So uh, could this be a distraction? Could this be, hey, look, obviously he's not friends with Russia. He's, he's fighting with them. I mean, is this a distraction? Do you think this is all smoke and mirrors? Well, uh, you may be getting to uh, one suggestion made by a Democratic Party uh, politician who seem to suggest that maybe all of this, or specifically the uh, uh, contretemps over the chemical warfare issue, had uh, been some kind of setup that would then give Trump an opportunity to appear to be... <laughs> Strong with Russia. Yeah. But I, I think uh, at this point, anybody who's gone near that position has uh, resiled from it and with a considerable degree of embarrassment. Uh, yet again, it you know, may be something to look at and uh, will never hurt to clarify things, but uh, it, it does seem uh, more and more a peculiar form of behavior for somebody um, who is said to have been in Putin's pocket. It also raises fascinating questions on the international surveillance side of things. Because I think there were many people who quite reasonably uh, at least hypothesized that if Putin had been able in some way or through intermediaries, if I can put it that way, to have penetrated certain of the Democratic Party elite and uh, some of their bodies, um, such as the Democratic National Committee, um, and extracted, as some have, uh, of course, alleged, uh, emails and other things from them to damage, ultimately, uh, Ms. Hillary Clinton during the campaign, then why might it have been that we were not seeing similar kinds of information leaked from and about the Republican side, and specifically Trump? Um, so that led, of course, to some theories that maybe there was, uh, shall we say, uh, favoritism on the part of the Russians with respect to benefiting uh, Trump. But again, that starts to look more and more dicey to the extent that in the wake of this explosion between the two sides, uh, nothing seems to have emerged uh, from the files of, uh, of the um, Russian intelligence element to uh, undermine uh, Trump further. Now, maybe it's going to be coming, or who knows what. That, that's but, a very good point, uh, David. If they had something on him, would not this be the perfect time to bring it out? One would think so, but who knows? Maybe there are, to 
twist the expression, more perfect times, and mm. maybe you keep your powder dry, and if you've got such information, you yank it out so when there are far bigger fish to fry. Remember, of course, that there could be trade agreements. There most certainly could be the possibility of major military agreements and interests where if you've got the kind of information that one might suppose the Putins have, uh, the Putin side could yank out later or at least uh, sit on. You know, again, there's all this uncertainty and uh, the uh, Soviet Russians and I think the modern Russian state have proved to be more than capable of biding their time when they need to. Hmm. Uh, could this be nothing more than just a lot of hot air from Trump? I mean, the guy has done everything but make life easy for himself. Uh, can the end, in the end, could this all just be crying wolf and he's just got a very vivid imagination? Now, uh, sorry, vivid imagination with respect to... What well, it, 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 like he's painting, the, he constantly painted this picture that he was more friendly with Russia than he was his own allies, you know, at, at one point. I mean, is this just to stir up controversy as opposed to some sort of underlying political reasoning? Well, I think he was uh, eager to send a message to the allies, uh, Canada included, that uh, the American taxpayer, not just for a few years and a few billion, but for a generation, has been uh, dealing with free riders, including Canada. I mean, uh, you know, just to get parochial about it, uh, many uh, Canadians have looked down their nose for a great many years at the idea that we had a at least then-functioning uh, universal health care system and that the Americans hadn't. But uh, the truth is that you look at the expenses the Americans have undertaken uh, on behalf of our defense uh, requirements, you could say the taxpayers paid for our uh, universal health care system uh, many times over in the U.S. Um, so uh, a lot of this is hidden in the ability of the Europeans to have drawn down their forces to an extent astonishing when you consider the nature of the uh, Russian threat and its established identity as a threat going back into the Soviet period could only really be explained by a combination of overconfidence and the knowledge that the Americans would be there to, uh, again, pull the proverbial chestnuts out of the fire if the Europeans mm. were to foul up again and be in immediate jeopardy. So uh, I guess these are... These are things that, and, and, and what are we seeing? I mean, results say something. We are seeing uh, Europeans now jumping, jumping to it. Uh, I just saw a report a little while ago of, uh, I guess, relevant uh, EU military authorities saying we're, we're absolutely engaged, we're seized of this problem, we're looking for money, we're going to come across with it, the kind of thing we haven't seen in years of immense American expenditure in Europe. Mm. So um, it, it's hard to argue with that element of results. Now, of course, the contrary is, is also very important. A message is sent by that kind of uh, threat, if I can use the term, against uh, our European allies, at least, because uh, it may suggest that um, there isn't the political will on the part of the United States to really provide the same backup to Europe, guarantee its uh, Western Europe's borders, and so on. And, and this is not irrelevant. When you look at the history of uh, the Soviets, during the Soviet era, um, they would talk about the Soviets would talk about something they called the correlation of forces. And I think to most of us, especially in the West, we would tend to think about counting the number of ships and tanks and planes on each side and try to make a guess as to who would succeed in what theaters of operation if it ever came to war. But the Soviet concept of correlation of forces tended to include a pretty big dollop of consideration for what you or I would call political will. And if they weren't seeing political will, then this could quite readily translate, uh, that is on, the, uh, on their adversary's side, the American side, then that would fairly quickly be translate into a, an emboldening situation. So, again, indecision, signals of indecision, uh, maybe lack of support, including the kinds of signals that Mr. Trump may have sent out earlier with those warnings to European allies, can bring more with them in consequence from the Russian side than, you know, they might have desired. 
we'll see how it all goes, but uh, interesting times for sure. Uh, Tillerson over there now, uh, before he left, said some pretty strong statements, basically saying you're either on our team or Assad's. You have to figure out what, you're, what, what side you're going to take. Uh, there was thought that he may... Um, uh, may not meet up with Putin. I, I just read uh, a breaking news alert that he is, in fact, meeting with Putin. What do you think that discussion is going to be like? Well, let me pull back just a sec. The um, fact that after all of the theater and drama and so on, and the questions that were obviously put out there by the Kremlin about whether Putin could take time from his dental appointment or whatever else to meet the <laughs> Secretary of State, um, all of that, when in the end it comes down to Putin's conceding a meeting with the Secretary of State, tells you that Putin feels it is very much in his interest mm. to go ahead with that meeting, notwithstanding any damage to his own, that is, Putin's own reputation from this. Uh, yeah, that's an extremely telling diplomatic issue. Uh, Putin could easily have uh, handed things over for that meeting to uh, the proverbial second-in-command, I guess, on all this. So it shows that uh, Trump has, for whatever reason, and rightly or wrongly, got at least some kind of credibility with Putin as a force. Again, maybe not as a person or mm -hmm. whatever else, but as a force. And uh, it, it takes you back also to a strategy that was uh, said to have been used by U.S. President Nixon in the uh, early 1970s when he was uh, in charge. And uh, he, in, in certain regards, would spin himself as somebody who, I think the expression had it, was just crazy enough that he might put his finger on the button. And uh, I suppose that there may be better ways of running diplomacy, but it's not a bad way, means of getting an adversary's attention and signaling seriousness. Maybe there's a bit of that that's come out here. And uh, the one thing in relation to the Tillerson statement that seemed a bit of an overreach was the black and white nature of that choice you described. Uh, that is, you're, you're with us or you're against us, you're with uh, Assad or you're, against, uh, or you're with us. Uh, the simple fact is that it would take a very, very great deal to convince the Russians to withdraw in any substantive sense. They've got uh, their last really major naval facility in Latakia, which is, of course, western uh, Syria. On the is, this just, is this just about how Tillerson approaches it or Trump approaches it, approaches it in the sense uh, less adversarial more than, hey, let us offer you an out. This is a strategy that will work for you. Yeah, this could be back to the art of the deal idea. Yeah. A, a certain transactional, uh, amoral... As opposed to a winner or a loser. Well, that's it. Uh, not heavy on the morality side. It's more, we can do a deal. Um, it's not personal. We don't like you. We don't dislike you. Or as uh, Margaret Thatcher said in relation, I suppose, to Gorbachev and the Soviets at the time, we can do business with him. She was clearly an avowed enemy of the Soviet system and, I dare say, of the leadership. But she recognized that there had come to pass an arrangement where there seemed to be an indication that business could be done with these people whom she would not at all have liked. Uh, all right, let's talk about what Transport Minister Mark Garneau uh, said yesterday, making an announcement that... Uh, uh, until fur further notice, uh, there's greater security on flights coming to Canada from certain countries. He did not tell us what countries. Uh, why not tell us what countries? Is it a benefit not to? Yeah, yeah, this is uh, intriguing. You could take two main lines in interpreting this. Uh, one would be the uh, reasonable and conventional one, that uh, you don't want to tip off adversaries about mm -hmm. what may be uh, more concentrated, maybe super concentrated investigations relating to source countries and travel from them. You know, there may be some relatively specific information uh, in relation to this stuff. Uh, is um, this does this have anything to do with the electronic devices that were banned by the states in Britain just a while ago? Well, that's it. We don't know, and uh, that's why you've done well to underscore that issue. Uh, we we just don't know. Um, and you know, are are there more broad ranging? Uh, limitations or exactions, if I can put it that way, being imposed on some coming from these areas, which gets you to the second uh, possible interpretation, and it may be some combination of the two. But the second possible one is that perhaps for something like legal reasons, 
the government isn't going to be keen to hand to uh, inevitable lawyers. Are you talking about a travel ban here? Do you think there could be the same sort of thing going on? Well, it, it wouldn't be a ban, but could there be restrictions that could lead some lawyers to right. argue, and I'm speaking as a lawyer here, it could lead some lawyers to uh, to sort of say, well, look, isn't this a de facto ban? Yes, it's not a, an overt, explicit ban, but are there features of whatever the constraints might be that may be imposed on specific individuals or countries that amount to something much the same? In which case, should we not have an ability uh, to go through due process uh, to the extent that this might influence or affect one of our clients or who knows whom? And, and then suddenly you've got a whole new ball game emerging. Uh, it would it would seem pretty strange if that were the uh, preoccupation of the government, simply because these things do tend to come out in some form or other after some delay, in which case then the government would tend to look as though they were being a bit more sly than it would be appetizing, and uh, you'd be back to exposure and so on, uh, ultimately. But um, let me ask you this, David, if, if, and let's just, again, I'm working hypothetically on this uh, electronics uh, ban, device ban that the U.S. And, and the U.K. were involved in, that Britain's involved in. Uh, why is the U.S. and, and Britain open about this, but not Canada? I mean, again, it's not like we would be the only ones doing it. I mean, there's others that have jumped on this as well in regard to the devices. Uh, why not be as open as the U.S. and Britain are? Well, well here I have to reveal a, a technical prejudice. Uh, I haven't been able to understand, based on uh, what I gather about the, the threats and the threat capability involving the use of laptops, why it is that for years and years we haven't gone the route of the U.K. and U.S. Uh, just now. I haven't understood why the U.S. and U.K. haven't, and, and all other countries haven't imposed some kind of pretty strict uh, restrictions above and beyond what we've got today uh, on, on those kinds of devices. We've had ample indication that such things could be used at very, very small quantities of explosives of the kind that you could get into uh, some of that kind of equipment if placed properly. And the terrorists, uh, certainly connected with ISIS and al-Qaeda, absolutely know they know where to put these things on an aircraft relative to the fuselage. They know at what altitudes, this is well known, at what altitudes you want the, uh, the, the explosion to occur. Uh, and, and I'm talking about you know, quantities that uh, if they were to detonate, quantities of explosives, if they were to detonate at low altitude, might not do any you know, dramatic damage, certainly not catastrophic damage. But at other altitudes, higher altitudes, you'd be talking about a completely different story. And uh, so taking all of that into account, I I'm surprised that it's taken this long to move decisively. However, uh, the idea of moving laptops into the proper baggage compartment as opposed to the cabins raises really serious questions in and of itself because... Uh, Again, you could have explosive, uh, explosions, uh, but you could also have fires developing mm -hmm. in, under conditions where it might be difficult to get at them. Uh, whereas if you've got certain kinds of equipment in the cabin, you may have some intimation through smell and other things that uh, something's going wrong. Uh, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a confusing sort of situation. And it reflects the way, as, uh, you know, as, as, as they say, I, I don't mean to be racist, but it reflects the stupidity of the human race in a number of significant regards in the way we've allowed technology, playthings, and other elements relating to technology to get ahead of our capacity to secure them in meaningful ways. And whether you look at cyber intrusion or this kind of issue, the rule seems to be there. So, you know, are we prepared to see planes fall out of the sky? Uh, well, of course, not by sentiment, but by action. It doesn't look very good on us. And, and we've seen such dedicated efforts on the part of, uh, I guess, Islamist uh, terrorists. Uh, the uh, Bojinka plot may be remembered by some people, where we were looking at the possibility of uh, terrorists bringing down, I think it was 10 to 12 airliners, more or less simultaneously over the Pacific. Mm. And then we saw the, uh, you know, the liquid-based uh, plots, um, yeah. uh, the shoe bomber and all that. And, and we spent our time, many of us, uh, laughing 
at this idea of banning liquids. Well, I think the reason perhaps we've had latitude to laugh has been precisely because the ban has kept off that kept, yeah. threat. There you go. David Harris has been with us, Insignia Strategic Group terrorism expert, talking about Transport Minister Mark Garneau's announcement yesterday that he has imposed new airline security measured, but, uh, measures but has provided very few details. David, thank you for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. Hey, take care. Let's go. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. An interesting letter uh, sent to councillors by uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger in regard to a trip to Waterloo to observe their LRT process. Found it fascinating. I thought we should get him on and talk about that. And, of course, uh, when you talk about uh, things going on in City Hall and the news story of the day or week is consulting fees, we'll have to ask him about that as well. Uh, Here he is, uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger from the City of Hamilton. Hello, Mayor Fred. How are you today? Great, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking the time to join us as usual. Let's get it out here right away, the whole consulting fee thing. What's your take on this? Where do we go? How do we move forward on this? Uh, so two, two things, Scott. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm glad that we have an auditing system that, uh, that is able to catch these things and uh, make sure that we uh, are able to, uh, to correct uh, where we need to correct. And I think that's a positive, uh, positive item. In fact, uh, the fact that uh, these things have occurred is certainly not a positive issue. And uh, you know, we'll be we'll be uh, watching very carefully and making sure that our city staff uh, put some policies in place to prevent this from happening in the first place, and ensuring that the policy is followed so that we can uh, properly, uh, you know, use consultants uh, when appropriate, but only when appropriate, and uh, you know, and, and ensure that when we do uh, that, the the value of that work is uh, is going to be something that's going to contribute to the decision making process or the work that we need to do. So uh, I'm, um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very disappointed that we are dealing with this issue, but at the same time delighted that uh, we have an auditing system that uh, that catches these things and then make, brings them to light and uh, allows us the opportunity to make adjustments and uh, and fix what needs to be fixed. Uh, is that assuming that this hasn't happened in the past? And I guess I'll get right to it. How does it happen? Who makes these calls? Well, we've had we've had auditing processes, uh, you know, going going for you know as long as I've been here. So this is not uh, not a new process. This is certainly an ongoing auditing system that uh, that audits various departments, uh, you know, uh, in various years. And you can imagine that uh, auditing is a very arduous process as you're looking through every every item of work that's being done and every contract that's being uh, worked through as a, as a large city. That that's a lot of work. So. It goes department by department, and it rotates to, throughout uh, different departments through different years. And so, uh, you know, it, it's possible, but uh, you know what, we uh, we are in the world of uh, uh, you know shrinking, uh, you know, shrinking the uh, the workforce, and that that's certainly something that has an impact in terms of uh, you know the demand for consulting work. And you know, often there's uh, there's a need to get the work done, and if there's a continuing pressure not to hire in new, then the only other way to get it done is to uh, bring in outside uh, consultants to be able to deliver that. Uh, I think that's that sometimes can be very effective to avoid from having to employ people on a full-time basis uh, going forward and not, up, not not continue to add to the to the staff complement. But uh, sometimes it ends up, as we can see here, the you know being done in a way that isn't uh, necessarily cost-effective and delivering the kind of uh, kind of effective uh, service delivery that we would expect. So uh, it, it's an ongoing process. I expect there'll be an audit, there, there'll be an audit of a different department uh, coming shortly thereafter. And uh, hopefully we, uh, you know, in many instances come out clean and uh, things are done appropriately. In this particular instance, uh, not so. And uh, it gives us an opportunity to get at it and fix it. All right, let's talk about LRT and uh, the note that you sent to councillors, uh, which I saw. And, and, and what happened up there? How did this all come about? Well, uh, uh, Kitchener Waterloo was having an open house for their uh, their the opening of their uh, new works facility and the arrival of their first uh, LRV light rail vehicle, and uh, so we thought it was a great opportunity to uh, not only go and visit but to meet up with uh, the regional chairman Ken Sealing and uh, the city manager Mike Murray and uh, Tom Calloway, who was the council lead on the project who uh, you know originally was a skeptic on the entire process is now its biggest champion and got an opportunity to talk to them about their experience as well as the operator that uh, is going to be operating the uh, the uh, the line uh, going forward the next 30 years they have various booths set up in the in the building there are thousands of people coming through 
Uh, it's an absolutely fantastic service and uh, operations building. But more importantly, the information that uh, I gleaned there was uh, not only images and pictures of what the actual LRT looks like on the street in terms of tracking, and, uh, but also the impact it has had on business. And, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, uh, the, uh, there were only two businesses that were, in, in fact, uh, identified LRT as the reason for them not being in business. Uh, they had some, some traditional business churn, and they had 31 businesses go out of business, but they had 33 new businesses replace that throughout the construction period. So two overall uh, you know, were, were identified as being ones that identified the construction as being the cause for their, their, um, their no longer being there. Uh, beyond that, uh, you know, we've heard messages in Hamilton of hundreds of businesses that are going to be uh, you know, harmed by this or being thrown out of business. That's not at all true. Uh, and we'll do everything humanly possible to ensure that access is provided all the way through the construction process. On the operating side, we learned that uh, in Kitchener-Waterloo, which is a longer uh, LRT than uh, is proposed for here in Hamilton, their overall operating and maintenance cost is $8 million, uh, and they uh, fully expect that to be offset by fares and by economic uplift, additional tax dollars coming as a result of uh, new investments, new commercial and, and residential investments uh, along the line. It is already happening, uh, and it is happening to the degree that they even anticipate that uh, the 1.5% additional tax they've had to levy because they've had to contribute some $250 million out of the local tax base, hmm. uh, they're, they're confident that even that will be made up by the economic uplift that, uh, that the LRT will help generate, which is already happening. So very very important information. So it, it really puts to put to puts the uh, the notion of this uh, enormous tax burden coming to the city of Hamilton as a result of this LRT is just a bogus statement, not based on fact. And uh, you don't have to go far to see evidence of quite the contrary. Uh, did you hear any negative comments? Not not when I was at the facility, but I did speak to some, and I made a point of you know talking to the people that were in line waiting to uh, with me waiting waiting to go through the LRV, and we saw some pictures of that. I think you might have posted them, mm-hmm. and uh, you know a lot of them were previously skeptical, and uh, and now are come around to you know what this this is going to be good for Kitchener Waterloo, and uh, now that we're past the construction phase, uh, you know things are going to start operating, and they're all pretty excited. Um, I didn't. I didn't speak to anyone that said this is the the dumbest thing since uh, since we uh, you know built an expressway or whatever it might be. Mm. So uh, I, I mean, but I, you know, I think uh, it was probably a converted audience that was there. Yeah. Uh, I, I think there are still some detractors in Kitchener Waterloo, but certainly uh, not ma- not many. And uh, and the evidence in terms of the the, the staff and the uh, the folks that are uh, building this thing and the operator. Uh, is that uh, this is going to generate returns, and this is not going to be a horrendous operating expense that that can't be managed. And uh, the examples of that are pretty clear, and that's certainly what we expect to have happen here in the city of Hamilton. And that's been our reporting, you know, right from day one. Uh, You know, back almost 11, five years ago, uh, there was a report put out that estimated the cost of operating at about $9 million overall. And, uh, and obviously, then there would be fares and there would be uh, additional uh, economic uplift. The other thing, by the way, that, uh, that came out of that is that this is a totally integrated system. So some people have asked, you know, are fares going to go up? Uh, no, not necessarily. Uh, the fares in Kitchener-Waterloo for the entire system, including LRT, is going to be one fare. Uh, and and it's in the, in, in the control of the municipality, the regional municipality. So the operator doesn't set the fares. The city, uh, the, the, the region of uh, Kitchener-Waterloo sets the fares going forward. And the operator uh, uh, bases his operations on that fare rate. Uh, obviously, uh, you asked them a lot of questions that Hamiltonians are concerned about, operating mm-hmm. costs you just touched on. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you get any other answers to questions that they are concerned about? And as a, as, as a part B to that, were some of the people you talked to surprised about the questions you were asking? Well, uh, you know, one of the, so, so when I tell, you know, people in Kitchener-Waterloo that we've got 100% funding and we don't have a financing impact or a taxing, capital taxing impact of this, they, uh, uh, it doesn't make them happy, quite frankly. And, uh, you know, because they had to pay for theirs, obviously. Well, they had to pay, you know, for a third of the third cost. of it. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, that's that's a burden on the tax base. And they've had to do that point and a half additional tax 
for the last uh, four or five years. Uh, and they're and they're and they're heading towards phase two, uh, very very aggressively. And uh, and you know I think the, the community at large sees the value of that kind of investment. I think there were some surprises around my advising them over the consternation that's happened here in Hamilton around uh, our our fully funded line. Um, I, I think there was also some some acknowledgement that uh, you know the the journey wasn't particularly smooth uh, going forward in Kitchener Waterloo either at the at the beginning, mm. uh, but uh, you know adequate information has been shared and uh, reporting has been done, and they they even had to convince the electorate at large on the numerous elections that putting an additional one and a half percent on top of their tax load each and every year was going to be a worthwhile investment in the future of their community. Uh, that's something that we don't have to do, and yet we're still debating whether or not we should be moving forward on this. So lots of surprise around uh, the notion that some are prepared to not do this, even though it's 100% funded. Uh, that, that certainly makes them shake their heads. What's happening along the line itself? When you toured along the line and, and saw what was going on around it, can you start to see any of that development yet? Yeah, the cranes are up uh, in downtown uh, uh, Waterloo, for sure, in Kitchener. Uh, there are a lot of developments that are uh, in process. Uh, uh, the, the regional chairman and Mr. Calloway and the city manager have indicated that uh, a lot of that started in, on the promise of LRT, and a lot of it is starting now Now that LRT is uh, well on its way. They're about 90% finished, so they expect within the next six, or six months or so, once they get all of their cars in, they're going to be able to uh, to get uh, operational, and they expect it to uh, to go even beyond uh, what they're experiencing today, which more than offsets any uh, operating uh, d- deficit that they that might occur as a result of this. So they're uh, they're they're uh, they're really they're really looking to the future, and they're looking to phase two. And uh, you know they're anticipating that uh, that phase two is going to generate uh, economic uplift on the, the next line as well. Uh, they're not going to stop there. They see it as a competitive issue which, uh, you know, is interesting and uh, I think we mm-hmm. ought to be mindful of because uh, they can outcompete us in terms of quality of life and uh, ease of getting around and uh, attracting employers that uh, are looking for those kinds of attributes in cities. Uh, they've certainly now delivered it, and uh, we're going to either be left behind in that scenario or we're going to stay pace with what our other communities are doing. Do you think we take for granted the history of Hamilton and its geography and location around the lake? We just don't think a, a place like Kitchener-Waterloo will leapfrog us one day or has? Well, I mean, uh, you know, the, in, in, in some respects, Kitchener-Waterloo, because of their tech uh, tech uh, kind yeah. of, uh, direction and, and BlackBerry being the foundation of that, has certainly, uh, you know, found a found a path for future prosperity. And, and, and we have our own attributes. And, uh, you know, I think there's no need for us to necessarily uh, try and take away what's going on in Kitchener-Waterloo. But we have uh, things that they don't have that they would love to have. We have a fabulous port. We yeah. have an airport. Uh, we have uh, great access coming right through the heart of our city in terms of uh, trucking lanes and rail lines. Uh, those are all attributes that uh, help develop and grow our city that we can build on. But at the same time, I think uh, you know you want a livable city that uh, that uh, employers can can um, can afford to bring people to that uh, would, would give them the opportunity to have affordable, sustainable public transportation. Uh, so, uh, I, and on that score, as of today. Certainly, Kitchener Waterloo is ahead of us, and uh, you know we we certainly. Uh, I'm not I'm not here to keep up with the Joneses, but I think hmm. for us it's uh, it's public transportation, yes, and the economic uplift and the opportunity to grow the commercial and and residential tax base is is what's paramount in the opportunity for us, and it's staring us right on in, in staring us in the face, and 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 we're getting 100% funding as a result. So what I, has I think, I think the opportunities are clear, and uh, if we fail to seize them, uh, I think that will, it, it'll be regretted for many, many years. What was the response uh, from council to your note and your visit? Um, I, I haven't heard anything from uh, members of council to date. Um, uh, you know, like not even a thank you for the note, Fred. Come on. Um, yeah, not even a thank you for the <laughs> note, to be honest. Uh, and uh, you know, I I I, I uh, haven't seen many of them yet. I'll see them tonight. Um, you know, I've been busy working on a number of other things, so I haven't had a whole lot of opportunity to interact. But uh, by email, I haven't heard anything. Um, and uh, certainly, I continue to encourage them to uh, take me up on the offer to uh, take a little drive down to Kitchener-Waterloo and see with their own eyes and hear with their own ears uh, 
what's actually happening as opposed to what people are perceiving or suggesting might happen, which uh, most of which isn't true. Are you worried about a change in government the next provincial election and that that might uh, alter this project in any way? No. So there's, there's two things happening here. I mean, one, one of the issues that, uh, that uh, you know, needs to be set aside is this notion. You know, I was, t- I was talking to John Tory, the mayor of Toronto, this morning, and he says, you know, he, he's had other folks, uh, you know, try and make the same case in Toronto about, well, we can use that money to do roads right. or, you know, other things. Uh, and and uh, he says, you know, I, I, I tell those people, and the province continues to confirm this, that this is not something that's going to happen. Uh, this is for transit, and if we decide not to use it for transit, then the money goes back. We still pay for the billion dollars through the provincial tax base, and it'll uh, land in some other community to, and build a nice transit, transit system for them there. Um, so one way or the other, we're going to pay for it, and uh, you know, transferring this into roads, and to remind everyone, the province and the federal government have not been and continue not to fund uh, any road repairs or any water and sewer repairs in our community or anywhere across the province, quite frankly. Uh, the last time we had any road money, real road money, was the expressway. And that was done because it connected two major highways uh, mm-hmm. with, with a, a, a interconnecting inner-city link. And uh, right now we're all delighted that it's been done, uh, but it's not something that, uh, that the province and the federal governments are putting their focus on. They're putting their focus on transit. So if we say no, the money goes away. In terms of elections, we've had the uh, leader of uh, the NDP say that uh, she's fully committed to, to uh, LRT and uh, would uh, maintain the commitment uh, if she becomes the Premier of Ontario. We've had the, uh, the leader of the Conservative Party suggest that he would also adhere to whatever the community decided to do. Uh, and, you know, certainly uh, I don't believe that they would change gears and start handing out money for roads and, uh, and sidewalks, particularly. I don't think that's uh, necessarily on for them either. And uh, clearly the Premier has indicated that uh, they're fully supportive of LRT. They have put a priority on not only local public transportation, but interregional public transportation through GO and GO Bus. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm confident that uh, no matter what happens, we're going to move forward on this. Uh, the only barrier to this uh, going forward is actually city council today. Mayor Fred Eisenberger has been with us. City of Hamilton uh, has been up to uh, Waterloo and checking out their LRT to see the progress that they have made and, of course, penned a letter to uh, council to uh, tell everybody about his visit and offer a ride up if they want to go see it as well. Uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger, thank you as always for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Have a good day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.